What man's most valuable asset that he can have? You say, well, your children, because they're the only earthly possession you can take with you to heaven. You know, I have more fun telling people that when I see people. And of course, I, for some reason, I love to talk to children when I'm around in public. And I'll make over a child, and then I'll say to the parent, love them while they're little. They don't stay little very long. And I said, and remember one other thing, how important it is, how important it is to give everything to that child, love that child, and teach that child that which is true from God's word because that's the only earthly possession you'll ever take with you to heaven. You can't take anything else. You can send other things ahead, but you can't take anything else with you. And it is important getting your children to go to heaven and having that as a possession is very important. Having good health is very important. Money isn't everything. It sure is handy to have around when you've got bills, but believe me, it's not the most important asset a person can have. I've seen a lot of people with so much money they don't even know what to do with it, and they're miserable. They have no purpose in life anymore. They just have no goals. They've got everything they could possibly want. It's certainly not property, because as I've told you, give yourself 100 years from now, and we'll see who the property really belongs to. The most valuable asset is not being well-known or having a lot of fame. We've seen some of the most famous people in the world lately die of overdose of drugs or uh, kill themselves one way or another committing suicide. And even though an education is very important, it's not the most valuable asset you can have. I want you to turn with me to Proverbs, the 22nd chapter, and it tells us a very, very important asset that we should all have. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 1, the most valuable asset you and I can possess, I really believe. All the other things will come with it. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and to be held in loving favor or esteem rather than silver or gold. Having a good name is one of the most valuable assets you can have. In Ecclesiastes 7.1, it says a good name is better than precious or expensive ointment or perfume. A good name is better than expensive perfume or ointment, precious ointment. Father, minister this truth to our hearts tonight, how important, how vital it is as believers for us to have a good name. Let me give you a definition of what it really means to have a good name. I just wrote a little definition down here. It means you can be depended upon to consistently do what is legally and morally right, whatever the cost. Let me say that again. A good name means that you can be depended upon to consistently do what is legally and morally right, whatever the cost. Now, that may sound like a simple definition, but if you'll get into it strongly enough, I think you'll begin to see that it's a costly definition because it says you'll do these things whatever the cost, and that's the key, that you'll have a good name whatever the cost. You see, because with a born-again believer, it isn't just your name that's at stake. It's God's name that's at stake. You say, you mean tell me that I have an effect upon God's name? Absolutely. Psalm 23, the third verse says, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for what? For His name's sake. His name's sake. That's why God leads us in paths of righteousness so that men may see our good works and glorify what? Our Father which is in heaven. Paul the Apostle said of the believers in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, in the second verse, Ye are our epistle known and read of all men. They look at you and determine what kind of message we're preaching. 
Dr. Cho, I just finished Chuck Colson's book on loving God, a big thick book that I wanted to get through. It's an excellent book for those that would like to read concerning what it really means to love God. In it, he talked about being over Dr. Cho's church in Korea. He spoke there five morning services with 25,000 people in each service. And when he went there, he said, I was critical of my own heart and mind because I thought, well, you know, you can't effectively have a ministry where, I mean, one man stands up and tries to, to pastor 150,000 people or 200,000 people, whatever it is. But when he got there, he said, and the service started, and he got up before the people and started to preach through Dr. Cho's interpretation. He said he just sensed the power and flowing of the Holy Spirit in that congregation. And after the fifth service, he could hardly move, I guess. He went in the back room of Dr. Cho and says, Dr. Cho, you have a fantastic church here. And he says, he's a very unassuming man. He just went like this. He said, no, no, no. He says, you don't understand. This is not the church. This is just where the believers come together. The church is out in 10,000 home Bible study groups. That's where the church is. And he said, everywhere everybody goes, the church is running all over Seoul, Korea. And an interesting thing he brought out that I couldn't it really grabbed me as I read it. He said the difference between the American church and the church in Korea is that we have a dichotomy in our daily experience all week long. A man will say, for example, well, I attend such and such a church, and on Thursday nights I work with the Gideons, but I am an engineer out at Martin Marietta. And he says, this is my religion, and this is my daily life. He said in Korea, their Christian life is everything. At work, at play, everywhere they go, they are a witness for Jesus Christ, a bold witness for Jesus Christ. Something that just about knocked me off my pins is when he said that many of the Christians over there, when they get two weeks of vacation every year, will take the first week of their vacation and will go up to Prayer Mountain and go back into that tunnel and will fast and pray for the first week of their vacation. Think of it. They'll get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, 4.30 in the morning, and they'll go and pray for one to two hours and go to work singing Christian songs as they're going to work. The name of Jesus Christ is being magnified over there. The church is one of the smallest religious groups in all of South Korea. The Buddhists and so forth, the rest of them are much larger, but they have the mightiest influence in Korea right now of any religious organization. You know, the, quote, Christian church in the United States is 10 times larger than any other group. And we're impotent in the United States. You know why? It's right here in this very thing. It doesn't have a good name. People will say, boy, if that's a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. I, I deal with people from day to day, and, and I've had people say to me, now, Pastor, don't misunderstand me, but do you know some of the hardest people in the world to work with are pastors? Dr. Daniels told me just recently that some, quote, Christian men came to him and asked him for some financial help. And he wanted to try to be a good brother. He went out and signed a note with them with the understanding they were going to give the car title to the bank where he signed the note. And they said, we forgot to bring the title. He said, the banker, don't worry about it. I'll sign the papers. They'll bring the title back. The bank didn't notify him that they didn't bring it back. And three months later, Dr. Daniels got a call from a leasing company saying that these men wanted to lease a car and, and used him as a credit reference. He said, they don't need a car. They've got a car. They're driving a car right now. I said, no, they've sold the car that they've got. He said, they can't sell it. It's, it's mortgaged. They said, no, they've already sold it. He called the bank and they said, Dr. Daniels, we're sorry we forgot to tell you. We didn't get back to you, but they didn't bring that title in. And all the note that they had signed, the stuff that they had bought on time, Christians bought on time, with him signing the note with them, they had sold it to somebody else in another city here in Florida and had just walked off and left him high and dry. 
And you wonder why the church of Jesus Christ doesn't have a name today, why they don't have power and doesn't have authority today. The Word of God says a good name is a most, one of the most valuable assets you and I can have. We represent God here on earth. It's a real pleasant experience from time to time when I'm traveling around the area here ministering and to have people say, well, I know such and such in your body. You know, they're, they're, they're really fine folks. They, they really walk what they talk. They really live what they're talking. I mean, I just, that's so refreshing. Say, glory to God. And then I've been around others. I mean, where I've been with other people and they say, yeah, I know such and such goes over to such and such church. And boy, nobody knows how much we have to be aware of how important a good name really is. And it's Satan's job to try to destroy our good name. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. You know, I hear people going around saying, well, he's a toothless lion. He is. Christ already took the fangs away, but the problem is the church is ignorant of that fact, and he's going around and messing up more Christians, and it's his job to try to ruin our good name. And that's why it says be sober, be vigilant. Being vigilant means be on the watch all the time because if he can't keep you away from Christ, he'll try to discredit you completely so that your witness will have no power whatsoever. Now, let me just go on to say and add this to it because there are a lot of people, you know, that say, well, I feel so sorry for such and such, but no one, no one is a victim of the work of Satan. If they are a victim at all, they are a willing victim. It tells us in James, the first chapter, verse 14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Don't say that God tempted you. And we've said time and time again that the battle takes place right here in our mind. Enemy comes and says something to you, do this and do that and do the other thing. And the Spirit of God says, no, don't do this, do that and do the other thing. And you and I decide whom we'll follow. And if we stumble and fall, and if we have our name discredited, it's because there came a time when we were not vigilant, we were not sober, but we willingly were enticed and drawn away by our own lusts and slipped and fell. And he's out there 24 hours a day looking for that little chink in our armor. He's got plenty of time. He'll wait and wait and wait until he finds you that you're very, very tired or you're very, very frustrated. Or he'll just wait until the day when mom at home has had a horrible day, everything has gone wrong, and you've been at work and everything went wrong, and then you had a blowout on the way home, and you looked under the car and there was a leak dripping off the transmission, and the car started smelling hot before you got home, and when you got in the driveway, the kids had everything piled up in the driveway, and you couldn't, and you were just, boy, just ready for it, and he says, here it comes, I've been waiting for this all day, and he sets the stage for us. And that's why if we're going to keep a good name, we're going to have to put it as a high priority in our life every day. We're going to have to be determined whenever we get up to the, this is the day that the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it, but I'm also going to be sober. I'm going to be vigilant. I'm going to determine today, make it the most important thing, not that I succeed. The most important thing is not that I succeed. The most important thing is that I am walking in obedience to God's word today and responding to the spirit of God. Now I say that because the scripture says very clearly, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And in reading this book by Chuck Colson on loving God, he gave a description that just, I sat there, and you know, it's kind of tough for me. I, I can pretty well hold up, but I, I sat there today, and I said, you know, I got ears in my eyes today, Mama. Got tears, but that's what our, one of our kids used to say when they were little. said, Mama, I got ears in my eyes when they were crying. But I got ears in my eyes today. 
because he talked about his prison ministry and that there, well, first of all, a prisoner had written to him that this grandmother such and such had been writing to him in prison. And she wrote and said that she probably wasn't going to be living very much longer. She was 91 at that time. And he said, Brother Colson, pray for Grandma such and such because she's been such a blessing to me. I, I, I don't want her to die right now. I've had no other contact with the outside world. Please pray for her. And so later on, he found out more about this lady, and she started writing to him and then asked him in one of her letters, would you conduct my funeral when I pass away? He wrote back and says, well, I can't say yes or no on that because our days are numbered only by the Lord, and I don't know when it will be or where I'll be when that time comes. So I cannot, he says, a very difficult letter to write, but he found out one time that he was going to be in that city for a convention where that lady lived, and at that time, she was writing to some 40 different prisoners in prisons around the country. So in his tight schedule, he made a chance to go down to see that grandmother. And he drove the car down. He said it came into a slum area. He said, you talk about dingy, dirty area. He said, I couldn't believe it. And I got to this old folks home. It was a, formerly a hotel that had been converted into an old folks home. And he said, when I walked through the front door, here sat all these old forms of people leaning over, some of them almost completely out of it, others sitting in front of a TV set just staring at the TV set like, like you're just waiting, you know, to die, nothing else to do whatsoever. And he said all the furniture, the cloth was rubbed off of it, and the finish on the materials, he said the carpet was just almost completely worn out, just gloom, dinginess. And by the way, he said this woman every month sent to his ministry monies. And one month he got her check allotment from the government just endorsed over to his ministry. He found out where she was, got in the elevator, went up the room, got out in the hallway, and says the same thing. Dirty, dingy, little tiny windows down the end of each hallway, narrow little hallway. And he walked down and knocked on her door, and a strong voice says, come in. He opened the door and walked in. This lady was sitting there in a wheelchair. She had fallen and broken her hip, sitting in a wheelchair and hadn't healed right. And he said, I had seen cells with more furniture in it than that room had. A desk over by the window with Bibles and concordances stacked on one pile and mail stacked on the other corner. And she was sitting there in front of there with a big smile, her hair combed back neatly. And she says, the Lord does give us the desires of our heart. Because she had asked him if he'd come and visit her. And he said that he just couldn't see any way. But he got there and she says, the Lord does give us the desires of our heart. She gave him some of the letters that she had received. And these people just went on and on and on. No one knew what a blessing, what a ministry she had with them. And she says, when the Lord spoke to me one time, she says, Lord, my husband has passed away. All my children have died now. My parents are gone now. My loved ones that I've known for so many years are gone now. I'm up in this room all by myself. Lord, please take me home. You know I'm ready to go home. Unless you've got something else for me to do, please take me home. And she said, the Lord just said three words to me, write two prisoners. She said, what? Write two prisoners. She said, I didn't know anything about prison ministries. I didn't even know where there was a prison. I had never heard of prisoners as such. I mean, I knew there were prisons, but I didn't know anything about them. And her English was terrible. She says, Lord, I don't have any education. I can't talk right. I, don't, I hardly know how to write. She had taught herself how to write and to read. And so she said, I just wanted to be obedient to the Lord. So I knew that there was supposed to be a prison in Atlanta. So I wrote to the prison in Atlanta and sent a letter saying, I'm a grandmother and I don't have a lot to do. And there may be some people there that are lonesome in, in, the, in that prison. And if they would like to have somebody to write to, tell them to write to me and I'll answer every letter. The warden evidently got the letter and gave it to the chaplain, and within just a few days, she got eight letters back from different prisoners. And she sat down, she said, I wouldn't write anything in letters that I wanted to write. I'd say, Lord Jesus, you tell me exactly what to write. And the responses that came back, she said, were incredible. 
because it was just like the Lord had told her ahead of time what the problem was, and when they'd write back, they'd say, I don't know how you knew that, but what a blessing it was that answered my need. I've never loved anyone before in my life. I didn't know anyone loved me, but I now know somebody loves me, that God loves me, and that you love me. And, and it went on and on and on and on. And he saw this woman filled with hope and expectation and blessings, excited about getting up the next morning because she would have just stacks of letters to, to answer. And seeing all these prisoners that, that were just growing in the Lord because of it. He said, I left there and went back down in that lobby. And I looked out in that lobby again. And one of the guys, I had to apologize. He looked, he was standing there with Chuck Colson. And he said, you know, this is so depressing. He said, it's just like they're waiting for the wagon to come and pick them up and, and bury them. No hope, no expectancy, nothing left. And he said, then I saw the emptiness of life without the hope of Jesus Christ in the life. You see, the Word of God says in Psalm 92, 12, that the righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. They'll bear more fruit in old age. He saw the contrast between living and life in Jesus Christ and fruitfulness in Jesus Christ until the time He calls you home. In contrast, all those that... and I'm, I mean, this lady upstairs could give you all the sad stories of her life also, that her loved ones had died. She saw her own children get sick and die. She saw some of her loved ones, grandchildren that had been tragically killed and so forth. All those heartaches, but here she was full of life and full of vitality and expectancy and just every day had meaning to her. And here these other people just sat there in a stupor and life had been mean to them, but they had allowed it to consume them. The enemy had won the victory and they were just sitting there as it were with no hope and no expectancy whatsoever. But again, I say that when that happens, it's because it's a willful surrender to the enemy. There never should come a time in your life or mine but what we would get up every day and know that God has a plan and a purpose and a ministry for us to accomplish for him. And the more we seek the Lord and the more we're willing to give of ourselves and, and to demonstrate the love of God in our life, that good name will bring back fruit. And that's why we have to have a high priority. That woman had to have a high priority in her life for Jesus Christ to where she would be willing at the age of 91 to sit down and start writing letters to prisoners. Think about it. Her biggest problem was finding enough hours in the day to complete them. While the rest of them sat down there just waiting, oh, when do they finally lay me back in the bed and when do they put me back up in my wheelchair, you see? Tremendous difference. Let me just say this, that a good name, which is very important, is usually destroyed by just little compromises. Just little compromises. And I'll share this with you. Anyone who is going to make fame or wealth or popularity their primary goal, they are open game for the enemy. If you're planning on making wealth or fame or popularity your goal in life, you are wide open to the shots of the enemy. He's going to nail you to the wall. Look at 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter, and you'll see what I mean. Verses 9 through 11. Paul is warning Timothy. I want to start with verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Just little things is all it's going to take. And so Paul said to Timothy, be very careful. Don't become involved in fame or wealth or popularity. Don't make that your goal in life. Five ways in which Satan is going to try to get us to compromise. The first way is if he can get us to compromise in the area of immorality. In the area of immorality. Turn over to 2 Timothy, the second chapter, verse 22. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. One of the strong areas that the enemy is going to work on young people today, it's going to be in the area of lust. Because they're receiving it from every direction. They're receiving it in classrooms. They're receiving it on television. They're receiving it amongst their peer group. They're receiving it in those that go to movies. They're receiving in all the literature they receive today, even young people's magazines. They are literally bombarded with this thing. And you are going to have to be sober. You're going to have to be vigilant. You're going to have to understand that the Word of God says, don't play around with it. Don't peek into it. Don't be curious about it. It said, flee it. Get away from it completely. And that's why I say to young people, I don't understand why they find this diet of R-rated movies or even some of the general movies today as being something that they can digest. It's to the place today where it's hard to even keep it on the news station nowadays because when you're on just strictly a news station, all you're getting is bad news. If there's good news, they'll cover that up. But if there's bad news, they'll bring that out. So I'm thinking, first of all, of the thought life. And you know, there are lots of young people and adults alike today that are caught up in the area of pornography. It's permeating our society today. And I want to tell you something, that can destroy you if you aren't set free from it, if you don't get away from it. And if you find somebody bound by that, let me tell you, that will drive those persons night and day until, like Dr. Daniel says, it'll take you further than you want to go, it'll keep you there longer than you want to stay, and it'll make you pay more than you want to pay. It is not something that you can do when you want to. Before long, that'll control you. It'll absolutely drive you. There's a church not too far from here who, because one man who was working in a ministry in a church, was found to be involved with little boys. That church has never been able to lose that stigmatism, and now they're going to have to sell and move and change the whole name of the church and sell out to someone else. Now, you see, if someone way back there, if that man could have been transparent way back there and said, I've got a problem, I've got a need, this thing is really bugging me, and I need to be set free from this thing, and would have gone been able to go to someone who could have helped him, what a difference it would have made. And that's why I say we become willing captives. We're drawn away with our own lust and enticed. We can say all we want to. Well, their background, yes, but God is sufficient. I say this with, with a broken heart. The greatest tragedy is the vast majority of churches today don't have an answer for those that are bound. And the Word of God not only says He's come to forgive our sins, but He's come to set the captive free. And I want you to know God wants us to be free in that area because if He can get us to compromise just a little bit, We'll get to the place where we're defeated. We'll get to the place where we're discouraged. We'll get to the place where, boy, if anybody ever found out, it ruined my testimony, so we keep our mouths shut lest they say, boy, you're a hypocrite. And that's just the way he drives us right down the ground. He'll get you to do it, and then he'll say, boy, and you call yourself a Christian, you worthless thing. How can you ever even face anybody? Don't you ever open your mouth about Jesus Christ again. You know what a mess you are, and that's just the way he works. He'll hand you a stick, and then he'll hit you over the head with it. There's four other areas, there are many areas, but four other that I want to communicate with you that Satan will use to try to get us to compromise. But understand that one of the greatest things that you and I can have as a Christian today is a good name. Let me give you that definition one more time. You can be depended upon to consistently do what is legally and morally right, whatever the cost. I've had some people say to me, well, 
Yes, but I couldn't do what I said I was going to do. It would have bankrupted me. Well, which is better, bankrupt morally or bankrupt financially? That's why we've got to be careful to do what we say we're going to do and be careful what we say we're going to do ahead of time. Let our yes be yes and our no, no. Very important. Now let me tell you, as I'm saying all this, I'm not saying that we're to be perfect. I'm saying, though, that when we see where the enemy is getting a foothold, that we get just as mad as we can get and deal with that situation. I've actually had people say, well, you know, I, I imagine I, I really need some ministry and deliverance and some help in this situation, but I just wouldn't want anyone to know. And I said to them, well, you really aren't ready yet then. Because when you're really ready, you wouldn't care if you came down to the front here and had to scream at the top of your lungs every situation and every problem and whatever it was. And when you got all done, I can tell you ahead of time that you won't be surprising anybody because you aren't the only one in the world that's got that problem. It's everywhere. The devil's only got so many tricks in his bag. We found that out. It's to the place now when we see a symptom, we say, yeah, we know what this is. Mm-hmm, yeah, we got that one before. Mm -hmm. And the Lord says, be vigilant and sober. Stand, withstand. Fight the good fight of faith. Because nothing is more precious than gold and silver. You say, like a guy said, that'd bankrupt me. I mean, I just couldn't afford to do what I said. Well, then you shouldn't have said it. But once you've said it, do it. And I'll tell you something. I had to pray money in before when I said something. That's why I'm very, very careful anymore before I make a commitment to someone. I'm snared with the words of my mouth. But I feel if I didn't, I could never face them again and talk to them about Jesus Christ. And you know something? You and I have a public reputation. Now, I'm not saying everybody's going to like you. You're never going to please everybody. But you need to be in the place where they can never accuse you of lying or wrong dealing, wrong motives. And whatever the cost is, make sure that you can stand at the end and look them straight in the face and say, before God, I did nothing to cause you to stumble before Jesus Christ. If you don't like what I say about from the Word of God, that's your problem. But I love the Lord, and I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. A good name. Young people learn that principle right now. If you grow up, even as a teenager or a young person in grade school even, and people can say, well, there's one thing about that child... They are honest. They will do what they say. If you begin to get that reputation, there is no end to what you can do in the days ahead. God will honor you the rest of your life for that. A good name is better than gold and silver. So if you have a good name, recognize something. You're richer than a lot of people that have got vaults full of money and gold and silver. We had a situation in Minnesota, and I'll close with this, where a man came and said he had such a burden for the old retired Lutheran people in Minnesota and he was going to start the retiral center for them. Well, he ended up in prison because he advertised that he was of a certain group of Lutherans, and he advertised that it was going to be this big, magnificent home for the Lutheran people, and he began to sell securities up there, and they found out that he took the money and bought heavy construction equipment with it and put a bunch of it over in another state and in some accounts and everything else. And when it came out, it said, Lutheran leaders abscound with money. And, of course, everybody that had ever known someone that was a Christian that was a Lutheran would say, uh-huh, boy, they're just like all the rest of them, you know. And then they look and they say, oh, Baptist minister, such and such. Uh-huh, just like the rest of them. And that's why we don't have any power today. God wants us to have a good name seven days a week. Father, let it become a high priority in our life 
that whatever we say we'll do, we'll do it for the glory of God at any cost. And then, Lord, help us day by day to cause people to be able to see that we earnestly desire to please you and seek the kingdom of God above everything else. And we know that if we do this, that you will open the doors before kings and anyone else that's necessary to get into to succeed because you said when we're faithful to you that you'll cause the blessings to run us down. And that's what we desire as a body of believers. In Jesus' precious name, we expect the answer to be coming forth in the days ahead as we walk obediently before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, minister this truth to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' precious name, we ask it. Amen. As I was sitting here thinking about teaching on it tonight, I just want to read to you some verses the Lord laid on my heart, and that's in 2 Timothy, the third chapter. Just a few verses here. It says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And it wasn't talking about non-religious people, just non-religious people. It says having a form of godliness. They're going to be religious type people, but these are going to be the characters. I don't know about you, but I hope that God never has to describe me in that bunch because he says we're to have a good name, and that means you're going to be dependent upon to consistently do what is legally and morally right, whatever the cost. And I said last week the reason for that is because God's name and God's reputation is at stake. He says concerning his children, he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That when we do good works, that men may see our good works and glorify us? No. Glorify our Father, which is in heaven, and they can tell then that God is in us. God is very, very concerned about us having a good name. And I said if anyone makes wealth or fame or popularity your primary goal, I'm talking about your primary goal now. And again, I want you to know God's not against you being wealthy. God's not against you being well-liked and famous or popular. But if that becomes your primary goal, you're an easy mark for Satan. He knows right where the Achilles heel will be, and he'll be able to put a dart into it instantly. And that's why a good name is usually destroyed by little compromises. It's not some great big fell swoop that takes place in a person's life where all of a sudden they take a plunge in the other direction but it's just where we give little by little by little, and he begins to eat away a foundation from under us. And I shared last night the first of five different ways Satan will try to use in our lives to cause us to compromise. And I said the first one was to try to get us involved in some immorality. I want you to know if you will study the life, for example, of Samson, that it was not something that happened overnight. Samson, first of all, just disobeyed his parents. They wanted him to marry a Hebrew girl, and they didn't do it. So he went out and found another of another nation. And they said, you shouldn't do that. And he said, that's the one I want. Go get her for me. And that was the beginning of it to where he ended up in immorality and unrighteousness away from God and had to be punished, got his hair cut in the devil's barber shop, and ended up behind a grist mill with his eyes poked out. And by the grace of God, at the very last, was able to kill more Philistines with his last effort than he had done in his whole lifetime because of God's grace and God's mercy and restoring his strength to him. But when you become involved in something like that, it's such a slow thing 
whether it's in the area of through the eye gate, the ear gate, through the sensuality of the flesh, whatever it might be, it causes us to start with a little compromise, and then the enemy starts locking you in. Well, I don't dare go back now. I might get caught. Somebody might find out, and the enemy can destroy our life that way and lose a good name. So many times in my ministry, I've had people come to me and say, did you know that thus and such has become involved in thus and such and is an immoral situation? No, I didn't know that. Well, how did you find out? Well, I just happened to catch them the other day. just happened to see it the other day. This is the way it happens. And they think, well, I'll get away with it, and I'll get away with it, and I'll get away with it. But the Scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out, and sooner or later it will be exposed. And I know that if you could sit down with every person that's ever gotten involved in that kind of a problem and said, now look, I'm going to tell you on such and such a date, somebody will see you and it will be exposed. You want everybody to know that that's what you're involved in. They'd all quit. It's just like I've talked about cigarette smoking or drinking of alcoholic beverages. If I could take a young person and bring them over here to the cancer hospital and run them down to the ward and show them these people that have had all their throats cut open and all the cancer taken out because of throat cancer and lung cancer and have them sitting there putting a cigarette up against that little tube they're trying to breathe through to still get some cigarettes. Say, now that's what we want you to become. Now here's your first pack. I don't think any of them would do it. If we could take them down to Skid Row and show them this guy that's completely debilitated lying there with vomits and vomit and flies and, and wine all over him and say, now that's what we want to make out of you or show them some drunken woman in the street that's become a prostitute having lost her home and family and say, now that's what we want you to become. Aren't you excited? We don't do it that way. We put a big sign up saying it's great, it's wonderful, it's the most dignified, sophisticated thing that you can do. And so slowly, slowly, slowly they go downhill until they've gone beyond where they can be helped. And that's the way the enemy works, with little compromises, step by step. I've had people say to me, well, when I first started this thing, I said, I'll never go that far. But you see, their first mistake was the first step. And that's why the Word of God says, flee fornication. That means all types of sexual immorality. Flee from it. Don't have anything to do with it. Stay away from it completely. That does not mean stand there and smell it, feel it, taste it, or touch it. It means when you see it around you, run from it. Get away. Joseph was willing to run from it to the extent that when Potiphar's wife reached out and grabbed him, she only grabbed his garment and he let his coat fly and come off of him and he went on and got out of there. Because Joseph made a very wonderful statement. He says, I cannot do this before my God. Stop and think for a moment what would happen if Joseph had just compromised in that one area one time. His whole life was a type of Jesus Christ and that would have destroyed the whole type. I'm so thankful that Joseph was obedient and faithful to God. He didn't ruin that type. See, Moses was supposed to be showing a type of Jesus Christ when he was to smite the rock and then speak to the rock. And he messed it up. And that's why it was such a big thing as far as God was concerned. Little disobediences. The second thing is the enemy will try to get us to become involved with dishonest practices. Let me show you some verses concerning this. 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. We're talking about biblical principles here now and how we should build a good name, and how the enemy would try to destroy it for us. 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, and the 21st verse. Providing for things honest, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul was speaking concerning the collection of the saint from the saints to give to others that were in need, and he was telling the procedures that they were going to take, and the reason they were going to take them was so that he could provide all things honest, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. He said, I don't want anybody to go around afterwards saying, well, 
Paul came in here, and the only reason he came in was for that big offering, and he took off. You know, that's why he's in the ministry today is for the money. You ever heard that? Well, the only reason that evangelist is in the ministry is for the money he gets out of it. Paul said, I don't want that accusation. I thank God that when Dr. Daniels is here, he just made it very clear I want nothing. I'll pay my own motel bill. I'll pay my own gas money. I'll Everything. I'll pay it all myself. Paul said, I did that so that I could not only provide all things honest in the sight of God, but all things honest in the sight of men. And I want you to know that if you and I are going to have a good name, as best we know how, we have to constantly see to it that all things that we do are honest before God and men. Now, I'll tell you something. Some people think, well, I can get away with it, and men won't find out. There's nothing we can get away with but what God finds out. He knows. So we ought to be more concerned about whether God finds out about it than if men do. I like what one fellow said not so long ago. He said, I'd rather be torn down by men and built it by God than built it by men and torn down by God. And Paul says we should have the same with God and man. Then Proverbs, the 20th chapter, and verse 23. Divers' weights are an abomination unto the Lord, and a false balance is not good. Divers' weights are an abomination unto the Lord, and a false balance is not good. The Lord loathes, despises all cheating and dishonesty. Let me assure you, the enemy will like to come in to ruin your good name if he can in that area too. I've had people say to me in the years I've been in the ministry, well, listen, pastor, why don't we just charge this thing to the church and then we won't have to charge you any taxes for it. And I have to say, no, this is not for the church. This is for me personally. Well, no one will find out. I said, God will. It's not for the church. It's for me personally. I'll pay taxes. The word says I'm to pay taxes. I'll pay taxes on it. But you know, Evidently, somewhere along the line, they found out that there's been some people who have been in the ministry that have come to them and said, listen, why don't you charge this to my church, then I won't have to pay taxes. And you know something? They pick up on that in no time at all. And I don't think that they'll call on that pastor when somebody dies in the family or some extreme emergency comes up in the family. Provide all things honest in the sight of God. And the scripture says here, the Lord hates, loathes, cheating, and dishonesty. But God says the most important thing that you and I can have is a good name. And the enemy will try his best to come in to get you involved in some kind of a dishonest practice. It may only be a dollar. It may be only ten cents. I've never forgotten an illustration I read years ago during the Depression when they used to bring their grain in to the elevator. They'd pull the wagon and the horses onto the scale. And then the man would stay on the wagon usually and... He would go and unload the wagon and then bring it back on again, and he would stay on the wagon again, and they'd weigh him and find out how much grain they had. Well, this one farmer brought his load in, and they weighed it with him on the wagon, and when he got back with the wagon, he stepped down and put one foot over and put all of his weight on the outside of the scale so all of his weight wasn't on the scale. And the man in the elevator didn't say anything to him until he got back in his wagon. He said, okay, go ahead. He stepped out the door, and he says, Johnson. He looked back. He said, you just sold yourself for 10 cents. He had stepped off the scale, so it looked like he had that much more grain. The wagon weighed that much less without his weight being on there, and it only made a difference of 10 cents, but the man had sold himself for 10 cents. And the world is watching. And when we come to tell them that Jesus Christ is a reality, if they see crookedness and dishonesty, cheating in little areas that Satan gets a hold of us, it defeats us. And it defeats our testimony. And how many times I've seen when revival has come, people have gone back and said, will you please forgive me? I did this and I did that and I did the other thing. So when that happens, you know revival is starting. When God begins to deal with people in some of these areas, 
look at Matthew, the fifth chapter. Jesus emphasizes again the very thing that we just talked about, that he loathes dishonesty. Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Now, I won't get into all the details of it except to say back there the Jews were great, saying, by the temple I swear, by the God of heaven, the throne of God in heaven, by this, by that I swear. And you've heard people say, I cross my heart and hope to die. So I swear upon a Bible, the only reason they're saying that is because there must be some evidence there that what they're saying could possibly not be the truth. Wouldn't it wouldn't be wonderful today if every born-again believer, every person who professes Jesus Christ as Lord that was in business today could just walk up to someone and say, I'll build your house for X number of dollars, and they say, sure, take it. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Well, now I want you to guarantee me, I want you to, now we're going to put this in here. If you don't, we're going to do it. And it's just jockeying for position everywhere you go. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of businessmen that are getting exhausted because of this, and it's all based upon one thing. Men can't trust men today. And the world is looking for someone they can trust. Look at Psalm 15, verses 1 through 4. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh, what? Uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. That means not hypocritically. Some people will speak something with their lips, but mean something else in their heart. But it means when you say it, you mean it. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. Well, if I do that, it'll cost me hundreds of dollars. Do it. If you said it, do it. If it came out of your mouth, do it. Well, financially, I'll be ruined. You deserve to be ruined if you were dumb enough to say it and then tell say, God, now you're going to have to restore me because I'm going to do what you told me to do. I'm going to say what I do what I say and say what I do. Look at that verse again. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. And I can tell you right now, I've had people tell me, I'll do thus and such for you at such and such a price and get halfway through it and say, you know, just can't do it. Now, there's sometimes it's right. You see, I may have shown them a job and didn't know the job was all that was there, that I, I didn't see there some work that was there. And I'll say, all right, that's right. We need to make an adjustment. There's more than there ought to be. But others come around, you know, you've seen on television time and time again, they'll come and say, well, I'll build this for $1,500. Then they'll come back and say, well, really, I'm, it's going to cost around $2,500 or $2,800. They've got you going. They want more money and more money. God hates that. And even if it costs you money, costs you more than you thought it was going to cost you, to do what you're supposed to do, do it and believe God will meet your need. That's what he's saying in the Word here. And once you compromise it on any area, you'll begin to enter an area of guilt and conviction, and you'll never have that peace and joy that you're supposed to have because the Word says what you say is your word is as good as your bond. 
again, now you can see if your goal is wealth, getting ahead, making money, then the enemy's got you on the run on these things because if you think you're going to lose money and your goal is to make money, what happens? You have to make a decision. And you make a decision contrary to the word of God and when you do that, that's disobedience and in disobedience comes judgment. We open ourselves to the, the attack of the enemy. And all these things that the scriptures teach here teach it for our good. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. God's Son is continuously cleansing us from all sin. Now, if we walk in disobedience, the opposite is true. And it's the defiling of our conscience that the enemy uses to keep us from being what God wants us to be. That's why the Lord said, all those commandments that I've given you are for your good. Keep them and you'll prosper and be blessed. I think that as believers, we ought to by faith begin to believe that if we walk in these convictions and do what God's word says here, that God will open up doors for us and cause us to be successful beyond our fondest dreams. I believe that's true. And every time we find we've slipped up on it, instantly stop and go back and say, wait a minute, I said thus and such and I didn't do that. Will you please forgive me? I will do that because I said it. Sometimes they'll say, well, no, you don't have to do that. No, don't worry about it. Listen, I understand. No, 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 no. I want you to understand something. The next time I come around to you and say something to you, I want you to know that what I say is what I mean. Well, yes, but we all do. I know we all do. But I'm asking God to help me so that I won't do that. He wants us to be a peculiar people. Bring forth the praises of him who has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we walk in the light, what is the light? His word. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. If we don't walk in the word, then we're walking in darkness. And this is the only place that we can find the proper principles by which to operate. And once we walk in them, we don't have to hope that we're going to succeed. We can know that sooner or later God will promote us. Now, I don't know about you. I've stood around on this word long enough to find out that it works. It does work. And the enemy's work is to steal and to kill and to destroy. To steal your joy and your peace and your testimony. But Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Walk in the truth that I've given you in the word and you'll know abundant life. And you know, whenever I talk about abundant life, just let me insert here that I'm not talking about all financial and material prosperity. I've seen some homes that don't have much in the way of material blessings but they wouldn't trade what they've got for some of the nicest homes and biggest bank accounts in the country because there's other things that have much more meaning when it comes to eternity. And that is being able to walk in the principles of God's word and have a relationship as a family and the blessing of seeing God answer the little prayers and to be trusting God for things every day and getting joy out of the little things of life. Good health, peace, God's come to restore. God's come to cause the home to be one and lives to be made whole in him if we'll obey his word. Father, thank you for the word of God. I pray that there be none here tonight that will ever walk another day of their life but what, first of all, they will recognize that Jesus Christ wants to come into their heart and become Lord and master of their life by invitation, that they'll repent and turn away from their sins, and invite the Lord Jesus Christ to come in and believe that he died for them personally and he rose again and he wants to live in their hearts and become their Lord and Master 
and that they'll walk day by day in the principles of your word. I thank you for the word of God. I thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I pray that as the word of God comes into our heart that we will have a clear conscience before God and man that at any cost we'll see to it that any improper relationships, wrong conducts will be dealt with so that we can have a clear conscience toward God and man. Everything we do will be transparent and upright before men. And they'll be able to see Jesus Christ and his righteousness in us day by day. Father, I thank you for every heart that's here tonight. They've come because they're hungry for the truth of your word. And I pray that as they learn these principles and begin to cause them to operate more and more in their lives, that they'll look back and see the joy and peace that comes from those that serve you and that they can be assured they'll never, ever be ashamed. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name and thank you for it. Amen.